That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Hallie Teko. And today we're going to be talking about waste in healthcare, specifically the 15 to 30% of healthcare spending that goes towards administrative costs. In a country where healthcare costs are ballooning, administrative bloat is a significant issue. And it's been noted that at least half of this administrative spending is wasteful. So what do we mean when we say healthcare administrative costs? In 2020, David Cutler defined it as the non-clinical costs of running a medical system. This can include things like claims management, clinical documentation, prior authorization, or appointment coordination. So to talk about this problem and how tech companies are solving it, we have two guests today. Oliver Kraz, MD, is the CEO and founder of ZocDoc, one of the OG digital health companies to scale and become a household name. Oliver is the most recent doctor in a 300-year family tradition, which is super cool. And over the course of his career, he has accrued comprehensive experience affecting change and building efficiency in large-scale healthcare organizations using information technology. Welcome, Oliver. Good to be here. Thank you. (laughs) And my other guest is my longtime digital health friend, Steve Kraus. Steve is a partner at Bessemer in the Cambridge office and a world-renowned healthcare investor. Welcome, Steve. Great to be here. Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you, Steve. So why don't we start, Oliver, can you contextualize the 15 to 30% of healthcare spending on administrative costs for us, why this issue is so persistent, and what systemic factors contribute to it? Yeah, I mean, look, there's administrative cost in any business you do. So whether you are selling widgets or providing a service uh, or providing healthcare, I think we shouldn't try to bring it down to zero. I think what's interesting about healthcare is that because we don't actually have a market, we're trying to make up and uh, create the checks and balances that a market-based system would uh, provide by creating more rules. And complying with all of these rules obviously creates additional administrative over- overhead that is very specific to healthcare and that makes the, this entire system feel particularly bloated. That is something that doctors experience every day. You know, my wife's a doctor. She spends all her nights uh, uh, sort of sitting there like documenting things that uh, the EHR company has come up uh, to do to make sure that they ultimately uh, get paid. It's more time that you spend with patients. And Oliver, I think you were early ground. I mean, as Hallie said, you're you're one of the OGs. Like literally, I I don't know who I know longer on this call, Hallie or you, Oliver. Um, But I think one of the things we we, we fail to recognize is, unfortunately, healthcare has only been digitized for like the last 10 years, right? And uh, as a result, when you can't use modern technologies to build a company, you actually have to brute force it with labor, right? And so... I'm really curious, you know, early on, how did you guys at, at ZocDoc 
how did you deal with that morass? Because you were dealing with a system where there wasn't, I mean, electronic medical records were barely adopted when you begun ZocDoc. So tell us a little bit about those early days and how you kind of forced technology into an industry that was using paper. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and you know, we still visited doctors and we helped them buy their first computer and install it. Uh, we installed internet connections in these offices. And know, what, year early, what year was this, Oliver? That's 2007, 2008. You know, that is sort of uh, the early days. I, I personally sat in doctors' offices and helped install printers and debug windows and taught them better strategies to play Minesweeper. So all of that uh, was the case. And it's obviously uh, now very, very different. But what's interesting is that these practices actually engaged with us on us because with us on on this topic of bringing technology in not because we could waive a you know subsidy a government subsidy for adopting EHRs or computers just because we could actually make their business better you know we could allow patients to find and engage with them we could uh, make sure that they had a way to make sure that their time was completely utilized and that this hidden capacity in healthcare, these last-minute cancellations, no-shows, reschedules, uh, were available for new patients uh, to, to take advantage of and, and really create a win-win uh, in, in the healthcare system. And so I'm actually uh, quite uh, positive that doctors are early adapters of technology where it makes sense to them. There are systems like Shopify or Square available for, uh, for every merchant out there and when you look at healthcare, the software that's uh, available is clunky. Some, it's very expensive. Makes your office staff work more than if they actually use uh, pen and paper. That's why 80% of doctors haven't actually adopted one of these sort of patient engagement tools. That was the shocking element. And, and once you peel that back, you, you realize it has really to do with uh, how a lot of these systems got started and, and where they see their true master to sit. And it, it's frequently not the patient, nor really the practice. And when you started, you said you were sitting like with doctors, helping them buy their first computer. You guys have been known to work with these small practices, right? So you're working, you're not working with like a large hospital system. These are often doctors that are running their own businesses. Tell us about how, how that looks for them because they're, they're doctors and they have to be business people. Yeah, so just to be sure, so the early days we started with small practices mm -hmm. because when you learn, uh, they tend to be more forgiving. And if, if you do get something wrong and break things, uh, you can bring them Starbucks latte and they will forgive you. <laughs> uh, and if you do that with the large health systems, they will yeah. kick you out. Today, uh, we have a very, very material health systems business. And okay. we work with a lot of the large groups that you know, you'd uh, you'd sort of recognize from the recent uh, M&A wave and, and then with a, with a whole uh, host of these roll-ups that are uh, that are financial sponsor uh, backing. But certainly the SMB space continues to be strong. Uh, that, that's an area that, that continues to grow for ZocDoc. And it is uh, sort of a, a slightly different go-to-market. So if you, if you think about how ZocDoc is experienced, uh, by an SMB doctor at this point, right? They would come to ZocDoc and just enter their information into their credit card and it's fully automated setup. If we look at the other end of this uh, spectrum, right? A hospital uh, frequently is a very long and, and uh, detailed uh, evaluation process that involves many, many people. So it's a, it's a very different experience for, for different parties. But I think 
particularly for the SMB space, it has a, a, a paucity of tools uh, that work for them. Uh, Zocdoc can deliver value in a way uh, that that's really not uh, competing with anything except for paper and, and not doing it, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. I think the way that we all feel this is when we go to our dentist, right, we will get postcards reminding us of our next dental cleaning. But when we go to all other medical doctors, we go there and we never hear back because they just don't have the right systems to uh, to support them yeah. uh, to, to stay in touch with you. And how does the administrative load go hand in hand with poor patient engagement? So these folks in, in small doctor's offices, they work incredibly hard. They work incredibly hard, but they just don't have the, the overall chassis that a hospital would have uh, in, in terms of support services that make sure that someone can deal with the insurances and someone can deal with the billing. They need to do all of these things. And the, and the thing that is the first one uh, to be scaled back as, as the staff is frequently overwhelmed with these administrative tasks is the patient mm. experience, is the is the customer service. And so uh, that uh, perversely comes at the expense of the, uh, of the stakeholder in healthcare for whom this entire system exists, right? Healthcare, it doesn't exist to make payers rich or to give doctors employment, it exists to treat patients and to give people that are sick, that are least capable of fighting a system stacked against them, uh, support. And so this is, uh, this is um, I think, one of the big paradoxes in, in healthcare that, that uh, we're working to overcome, and uh, I, I believe quite successfully so. Hey, Oliver, just to ground the heart of healthcare listeners, what percent of... of- patients' appointments are scheduled online today. And maybe you can compare that in healthcare to what we see in restaurants or to maybe airlines, for instance. I'm thinking of other industries. What, what, what are we looking at in terms of the disparity of, of using online scheduling? So obviously the future is going to be 100%. Uh, <laughs> and the future today is distributed uh, very, very differently. There's certainly some clients where, where we see 40, 50% of their appointments being set online. But I think the average is much lower than this. And if you just contrast this with something like booking an airline seat, you can't, like doing that over the phone incurs extra fees. That's how much they want to discourage <laughs> you uh, from actually doing that. Where in healthcare, it's, uh, it's normalcy uh, to set an appointment over the phone, even though there's really no incremental information uh, being transmitted. In fact, a lot of things are, are a lot uh, worse when you do them over the phone, right? When someone uses Zocdoc to book, we can, they can take a photo of their insurance card and we can do an eligibility check before they even ever confirm the booking. So they know that they're going to be covered. Over the phone, figuring out which of these numbers you're supposed to read to an office manager who's then got to type them correctly into another system to hopefully get a response while you're still on the phone uh, yeah. is uh, an incredible uh, amount of overhead and a lot of room for error. So. Uh, th- we are uh, we're still sort of winning people over to an actual superior experience. So I think there's there's a lot to happen. I do think uh, it's it's going to be increasingly sort of the, the dominant force. I think the future is going to collapse uh, on the presence uh, very very quickly now. Too. I mean, yeah. just from looking at sort of uh, the indicators that we are seeing, we have doubled the number of providers that are participating on the pl- platform last year. Right, we are on track 
uh, to grow the number of providers uh, 40% this year. So we have seen uh, you know, tremendous uptake uh, for sort of that, that online scheduling offering in the marketplace. And, and that's really, I think, an indicator for us for where the puck's going. I think there's also really driving forces on the players that are maybe most reluctant uh, to uh, really invest in these techno technological things, which is uh, interestingly uh, not uh, not the SMB space. It's uh, it's the hospitals, right? Because they uh, are just uh, sort of changing at their own rate. But what we've seen on Zocdoc on the Zocdoc platform, where we see a macro view on how market share, for example, plays out. Pre-pandemic, the market share breakdown between hospitals and large provider groups, you know, private equity roll-ups and you know, the, the Village MDs, the Walgreens, the CVSs of this world, uh, was roughly 50-50. This year, it's going to be 80-20. In the favor of these, uh, these uh, roll-ups and the, the LPG players, and I think that will just force hospitals to change the pace at which they adopt this type of technology to really meet the patient uh, where they are, because otherwise, you know, the, the, the yeah. most attractive patients will be systematically picked out from under them. What about virtual care and how ZocDoc, um, you guys are, are a marketplace for people to find great providers and get in quickly. How does virtual care play a role in that? So virtual care was a very interesting case for us. We had on the platform pre-pandemic and it was tiny. I mean, we got millions of searches every month. I could count the time that someone typed in virtual care or telehealth or anything that pointed in this direction on my fingers. Right. Wow. So then the pandemic hit and suddenly the utilization jumped from essentially nothing to 40 percent. Wow. And, and, and was going up and down with sort of the fear uh, that, that COVID induced or you know, relaxed as, as sort of it seemed uh, uh, more under control. But what we've seen since uh, sort of the pandemic is into in our psychological rearview mirror is that patients are going back, you know, to telehealth. That 40% has shriveled down to sort of a single digit percentage. And that nearly all of that is driven by mental health, which is still predominantly delivered through, uh, through telehealth. Everything else is back in person. And, and even the things where you say, well, this could really happen through telehealth, patients just don't want it. It's not that we are a biased observer here. On ZocDoc, we have doctors that only offer telehealth, doctors that only offer in person, doctors that offer both at your choice. And we, we show them in the search results and we just can observe how patients actually choose. And they end up booking appointments in person. Now, interestingly, if you're a doctor that's thinking about, okay, but how do I reach patients? If you also offer telehealth as an yeah. option, you nearly double your win rate compared to only offering telehealth. And you increase by 40% relative to only offering in-person. So it's an important option to offer to patients as a marketing tool, but it's an option that the patients will not don't. take you up on. They want to know that is an option, but they don't right. necessarily use it. That's exactly right. And it's more like I have this in my pocket uh, when I need it, but then they still realize that the in-person is, is what they want. And, and my belief is, that's not totally wrong, simply because for the time being, at least, we all have physical bodies, right? And you cannot use telehealth. For the time it, being. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I personally, I, I, you know, I enjoy living in my skin, so I hope that's going to be the case for a long time to come. But 
as long as that's true, right? Yeah. You cannot smell someone. You cannot look into someone's throat. You cannot listen to their heart. You can't poke their abdomen. You know, through a telehealth app. You can yeah. all the things that are physical about us cannot be truly captured. And just like there is no real telepizza app, right? Uh, there is uh, there's a limited use uh, for uh, for telehealth and medicine. And I think. Yeah. The the categorical mistake that we've made uh, when when the pandemic first started is that we thought that telehealth is to you know in person care what the car was to the horse drawn buggy, where it turned out that telehealth was more like an e scooter, right? You may use it occasionally to go down the block you know to the convenience store, but it's not really something you would ever take to go to the airport. And most of the time, you know, uh, you, you are on these longer trips uh, or, or you walk, which means you just wait yeah. to get there. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little more of an optimistic, hopefully, because I think uh, the society is changing and demographics are changing and the younger people want more on demand. And I think it, telehealth will be appropriate for preventative care, which is a topic Hallie and I have talked about and might help drive down costs. But, but I hear you. I don't disagree with the thesis that we need to be seen in person. I want to push on one other hot topic nowadays, which is generative AI, right? One of the solves for driving a lot of the laborious manual tasks at a healthcare would be to automate them. We now have a whole plethora of technologies which are advancing every single day in terms of their power to automate generative AI. I'm curious how you think about it because you're right in the middle of administrative waste. Like one... Do you think the the reality equals the hype here for healthcare? And then two, how are you as a business owner, a business leader at ZocDoc using generative AI to improve your business? Yeah, so I think uh, generative AI and AI in general is, is real and it can make a huge difference. Uh, we're actually in the process of partnering with some of our larger uh, provider groups to get enough data on some of these processes to truly help them and, and uh, to train our models. Uh, those partnerships uh, hopefully will lead to uh, us being able to announce something soon. Uh, what, what is clear though, as, as you go and train these models and we've now spent some time with that is that they're not determinate, which is troubling, right? So a, a general uh, AI piece may do what you expect nine out of 10 times, but the 10th time, it just does something completely different for no apparent reason. And I think that's, uh, a complication that uh, we really have to uh, all work with as long as uh, these systems behave this way. Uh, but uh, do I think that that will, is something that will be overcome in, in the near future? I absolutely uh, think so. And I do think that will hopefully take care of a lot of the administrative uh, tasks. But let's go back to what I said at the very beginning. Why do we have so many rules in healthcare, right? It's because uh, the parties uh, don't trust each other and there is no market to keep people in check. So as you can imagine, once we have AI to overcome some of these rules that are meant to sort of keep the other party in check, I would expect mm. the complexity of the rules that you have to engage with to actually go up. So uh, mm. it, it might be one of these things where you can uh, sort of uh, reach an, a detente at a, at a different level, but I don't think it's uh, going to be easy to declare complete victory. It's going to be detente between the payers, the providers, the consumer, and the robots. That's, yeah, okay. There we <laughs> yeah. go. Or, I, or, or maybe all these parties will have their own robots fighting for them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, right. uh, and then, uh, then yeah. hopefully these robots never turn on us. We'll be right back after the break. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Oliver, what is ZocDoc announcing in the patient engagement arena? It's a pretty big expansion from your marketplace and curious what prompted the shift. Yeah, thank you for asking. So ZocDoc is doing something completely new for the very first time, right? The last 16 years, everything we ever did had to do with the marketplace. You know, how do you book on ZocDoc? How do you book through the ZocDoc app? You know, how do we make that more seamless? Now we're launching a product that builds on some of our expertise, but that any provider can use for all of their patients, irrespective of whether they show up on the marketplace irrespective on whether these patients have booked through the marketplace or booking through other things. And it's a patient engagement suite where we actually use our expertise to be engaging, right? That's what our business uh, depends on uh, and, uh, and help the doctors with things like intake, right? How do you get patients to actually give you all the information you need beforehand, uh, like your, uh, the medical history or the insurance forms and the, and the uh, insurance validation. Online scheduling, you know, both from their own website, but also from directly from search engines. Things like uh, ZocDoc video service, sort of a safe, uh, HIPAA safe and, and compliant uh, uh, video chat solution. All of these tools and others are available completely for free for any US-based doctor, for all their patients, mm. completely separate and divorced from the ZocDoc.com marketplace, which obviously will continue to exist. How are you going to make money off of it if it's free? So we uh, are in a fortunate position where our marketplace uh, is doing very, very well and, and it's put us in a position where we can invest in these kinds of tools. And we think that as providers get to know us uh, and, and realize uh, how sophisticated we think about a lot of the issues that bug them uh, in, in their uh, sort of existence as a business, uh, they, they might also be inclined to use the marketplace uh, when that makes sense for them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it's not a requirement. And, and I yeah. think we can create a lot of value uh, on, on a premium type offering. And maybe we can transition to kind of the your, your experience as a founder, because a lot of our listeners, I think, would, would, would learn a lot. I mean, you are one of the OGs, as Hallie mentioned. 
I mean, I can point to a, a number of risks <laughs> and challenges that you, and we want to hit on some that you've had in your founder journey, but let's start with the fundamental business model. I mean, building a marketplace is, building a healthcare is impossible. Building a marketplace is impossible. <laughs> building a healthcare marketplace is virtually heroic. Like, would you do it again? But maybe the better pre question is for founders who might think about building a marketplace in healthcare, what would you tell them? How would you tell them how to start? Yeah, so it's very difficult. And, and one addition to what you said is it's not that you run one marketplace, right? You literally run millions of zip code specialty insurance marketplaces. And you need to get very, very good at understanding what these markets actually are. And you need a lot of uh, critical mass, right? We were blessed that we started at a time when uh, sort of money was plentiful and we were allowed to make a lot of mistakes to, to get it off the ground. But uh, it's always difficult, even with the ability to make mistakes. And uh, we, quite frankly, brute forced us uh, into existence. I personally walked the streets of New York going from office to office and trying to uh, talk doctors into using us. I still have relationships with some of the office staff in, in these early offices and they use me as their customer support. And it, mm. it, it is something that is hard. I think the reason why we succeeded where others failed is because what we are selling to the doctor is one of the most valuable things you can ever sell, which is top line revenue, right? And uh, that is attractive no matter what business you run Everyone and anyone wants more top line. And so uh, we had something that, that had a fair amount of pull, um, but it is something that took us many, many years to learn how to do well, how to manage well, and has taken us even uh, years after that to make uh, very, very efficient from an automation perspective, right? I, I mentioned earlier that uh, doctors now come to us, they pull out the information on the uh, on the website and they put in their credit card and they don't really have to speak to someone on the doctor team to uh, to onboard. That was absolutely not the case for the first uh, 10 years of our existence because there are so many different steps that uh, you need to do that where you need to validate that the doctor is real, where you need to validate which insurances they accept, where you need to validate which system they're on and, and how they're using their specific schedule it is, uh, it is, it is grueling. And you asked me in the beginning if I would do it again. When I started, I had uh, all black hair. Now it's all gray. You're still here, though. All right, like that. Sixteen years in the founder CEO chair is remarkable. Yeah. So, in all fairness, I am in the CEO seat for roughly eight years at this point. We had a CEO transition, uh, okay. and and we absolutely. Um, uh, we absolutely are here. In fact, we're here just now in some ways, right? One of the uh, somewhat untold stories about Zoftalk is that we had to go through a complete business model revamp. Eight years in, and you know, we had already raised money at high valuations, and we realized that the subscription model that we had started with did not work because some doctors got 10 bookings a year from us, mm. some got 10,000. And if Everyone pays us the same price. You're pay, you're pricing nearly everyone incorrectly. And it's a power curve. So it's not a bell curve. So it's not that you can put some average and you're pricing 70% of the people right. No, we were pricing essentially everyone incorrectly. 
And, and so as part of that, we had to you know, bet the company on our ability to get clarification of federal regulations, to change state mm. law, to be able to resell our customers on a new way to do business with us, including asking some of our best customers to pay significantly, significantly more. Some of them had to pay a hundred times more uh, than uh, before. And, and that with, you know, looking at the, at the literature where we could only, the only company that we saw that had at scale changed their business model was Adobe going from a subscription uh, box software to, to a subscription service. And when yeah. we talked to pricing specialists, the number one thing they told us not to do was to charge our best clients more, but it wouldn't work if we didn't charge our best clients more. So we had to do all that. We had to change the entire operating system uh, of the company wow. and we had to keep morale together for a team that expected, you know, back then a near-term IPO that we now had to tell, no, we actually have to first go through a business model change. Those they have been some of the hard things. Yeah, that's uh, when you went do. gray. Well, truth be told, uh, I... I that was one of the contributors. And obviously then once the pandemic hit, right, our red, yeah. we, that was when we had just finished our transition to a usage-based model. And the CDC told everyone, well, if you can avoid it, don't go to the doctor. So our revenue dropped 90% uh, uh. In, in March uh, and April of 2020. Uh, and uh, and uh, that was another uh. probably graying event. But it uh, speaks to the sort of underlying value proposition of software for providers. Uh, that uh, yeah, we've been, we were even, even though we had a complete wipe out in Q2, we're still able to grow in 2020 and we've been really exploding uh, since then, just based on this new business model where it's free for a provider to join uh, and they only pay us when they get a new patient, they pay us a one-time sort of patient acquisition uh, marketing fee uh, if you want to. And, and so that uh, is a model that makes a lot of sense uh, to providers and has really unlocked our growth. You've been able to raise a lot of venture capital. I want to go a little bit back in time to the beginning because you, you acknowledge you've been successful at raising, but I believe your first fundraise was like in 2008. And for those listeners who weren't around in 2008, that was like right before the financial global financial crisis and the famous Sequoia RIP good times memo. And so, I'm, and you raised from amazing venture capitalists, Kosla, I think Benioff, uh, Bezos, if I remember, but Apparently, you know, it's really apparent to this time that we're going through a tough time and, and entrepreneurs need to be scrappy. Like, what lessons would you share from the memories of that time? What did you do? What can founders, entrepreneurs, executives learn from you from how you were able to persist that, that period of, of, of darkness? So, honestly, I think it's uh, one of these things that was really, really good for the company because it instilled a very scrappy culture and a very resilient culture at ZocDoc from month six, uh, so to speak, right? How much did you raise we, in the Series A? We raised uh, $4 million, roughly. $4 million. And mm -hmm. you need to make that last, like, probably three years. Three years. Or something yeah. like that. We made it last, uh, you know, for, for an extended period of time, but we just decided that we needed to, to replace money with smarts. And we, we were, you know, we had a creative team at the time, and we worked our way through what the issues were, what we were spending money on, and how we could uh, replace this. And I think that mindset, right, that, okay, if we have less money, we'll do, make it do with less money, helped us overcome the business model transition, it helped us overcome uh, you know, COVID-19 and, and the revenue drop associated with that, and it made us probably a more courageous company uh, that, uh, than, than if you grow up in affluence. 
Do you feel like it's, it is the same now, what founders are going through now? Well, I mean, I uh, would say it turned out that fundraising post-2008 wasn't nearly as hard as people thought, right? And uh, you know, interest rates were very low and and uh, what have you. It might not be the exact same thing uh, today. Yeah. What, what I reflect on sometimes is that uh, a lot of folks that are approaching 40, right, that, that graduated business school, you know, with 25, 24, 25, they have now seen 14 years without a recession. They, in their professional careers, they've never actually managed through one. I think this is going to be you know, a formative experience if a yeah. recession is, is indeed coming and something very valuable that uh, no one uh, can be without. Uh, I, I think it was Jack Balsh who said, you aren't a CEO until you had at least one near death experience. And I think there is some uh, truth to that. And, and I expect that this will be the learning opportunity for a lot of this, uh, these folks that, that are very, very good, but just haven't lived in this environment before. Yeah, I'm literally turning 40 in two months and went to business school at 25. So uh, <laughs> I, went, I went to business school in 2009, the hardest year it was to get into business school because uh, everybody wanted to go back to school. So yeah, it's a first for me for sure. Hey, Oliver, well, by my count, I think you've been through three near-death experiences, right? You, you 2008, the pricing model, and then you know you had a tough founder separation. I think it took some cultural hits on your company. Um Happy to have you speak about that and how you manage through that. Then how do you process it and how does it affect you emotionally? I'm just curious, lessons from that experience in your end. Well, look, I think it's not uncommon, right? That as a company grows and changes that, you know, some people evolve alongside the company and some people sort of stay the same person they were when they started the company. And so I think these kind of transitions are are common. And I think you're wise to to think through this ahead of time. My only two senses, as they always say, every happy family is the same and any unhappy family is unhappy in their own uh, specific way. So uh, I don't think life is something that, that is easily planned for uh, and, and plans don't survive contact with the, uh, with the, with reality. But, uh, you know, it, it's obviously wise to, uh, to make sure that as you get started, right, you, you know what each can contribute and why you think it will get you to that next uh, level and my personal philosophy has always been being rational and calm and like thinking through what the situation uh, actually requires and checking your ego at the door is uh, is an important ingredient to success. You've seen a lot of companies become unicorns, raise a ton of funding, and fail since running Zocdoc. Like you've been kind of this this steady growing company for so long. What do you think is different about the approach that you've taken? How much of it is rooted in that culture that you were you set up in 0809 that has given Zocdoc staying power? So I think there's obviously a huge cultural component to that. I think the other component is that when I thought about what kind of company I wanted to start. I wanted something that is addressing an actual pain point for multiple stakeholders in the system right now. And, and a lot of companies that uh, get unicorn valuations start with a kind of top-down process of saying, well, mm. let's imagine this other future and like how it would be better for this one stakeholder. And then you know, we will build towards that. And as you build it, they will come. And that can work spectacularly, of course. But if you got it wrong, you usually have very little room to maneuver to uh, make it uh, better and, and to fix it. Where if you start bottom up like ZocDoc and you're willing to do the hard work, you know, to integrate with a lot of different partners, right? And we, it was a grind, right? We integrated with over 150 different 
practice management system. We're working with 18,000 different insurances. We work across 250 different specialties. And each one of them opens up a matrix you know, of connectivity and, 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 and sort of connective tissue that's required to really make this work. Yeah. Even if you just draw this out on a, on a piece of paper, you realize that's not going to be fast. But you also know that in return, you're getting a real problem that you're solving from day one and you're solving it a little bit more every day that follows, right? And that builds sort of a foundation on which you can then build things like sort of practice solution, which we, which we just released, where we say, well, we already have the integrations with these practice management systems. We already have expertise uh, with consumer engagement. We can actually create an engaging solution versus one that's you know, yeah. designed for pharma companies or, or payers. And so I think that's, that's part of the calculus, right? Is yeah. do, do I need to, uh, you know, start something that can be successful in a flash that I will potentially sell on to other investors before they realize it, it won't fully for, uh, succeed? Or is it something that, uh, that I see as my mission and calling to really contribute to a, a positive change in the healthcare system? And I think when you have that latter view, then, you know, you have a, a lot more patience and, and you're going to, pursue something that, that has a more bottom-up approach. And so when Steve asked me, would I do it again? I kind of knew what I was getting into when I started. You talked about, I'm sure culture helps you persist. The three lives or nine lives you, you, you've lived so far in the ZocDoc journey. I know, uh, though, that you've admitted that at, at times the culture was not as strong as it is now. I, I looked at your Glassdoor ratings. They're very strong now. Congratulations on those. But And I can't look in the past. But You've admitted you had some culture challenges in the company after probably the founder um, challenges and departure you had. I'm curious, how do you turn a culture around, especially at the mm, scale that question. you were at? Because you weren't a small company. Like it's easy to set culture early on, but you're midstream. You, you, how do you change it? Like, what do you do as a leader? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, great, that's a great question. I think if you think about ZocDoc pre-business model transition, right, it was... Uh, a sales-led culture where we try to overcome the fundamental shortcomings of the business model by just selling more doctors and, and hoping that we get more of those that are at the one end of the uh, bookings distribution that would stick around. And, and, and when you do that, you and you scale a sales team very aggressively. You get all the downsides of scaling uh, a team uh, very, very quickly. And and so I think that's where some of these cultural issues back then in the early uh, early teens. Uh, of the century sort of originated. We were lucky in some way, ways that we had multiple co-founders. Uh, I was around since the beginning and I was able to transition the, the company to uh, you know, a more product-led uh, culture that, that sort of favors uh, you know, technology solutions and, and cooperation uh, and, and brainstorming in sort of a safe, uh, psychologically safe environment uh, for people mm. to do that. And I think uh, that's how we got uh, the turnaround. People were bought in on me being important to ZocDoc and me being able to set a different tone uh, than what uh, existed before. And so the founder transition was also actually a quite uh, markedly successful part in, in our ability to uh, to turn around uh, the, the culture. How big of a company was it around that time? Uh, probably around 800 people. Okay. And you were, you were, you were president before you were CEO. So you were still in... In yeah, management, I was, you weren't uh, exactly. Yeah. I was, I was, I back then had uh, president maybe slightly misleading, but I was managing marketing, product, technology, you know, enterprise sales, uh, government yeah. relations, and, and things like that. So I had, you know, a broad uh, remit. I did not manage our, you know, uh, 
large uh, sort of SMB sales force that was uh, that was really very very uh, aggressively selling to doctors at the time, which was uh, one of the things that I thought was unsustainable about our business model and that uh, they need to change and that I did change. Yeah, and what's next for Zocdoc? Other than pa- getting into more patient engagement and some new freemium products. Yeah, I think there's there's actually a long journey with with that. So we have we have the benefit of of uh, sort of understanding what the pain points are uh, for uh, for our doctors. As I, as I said earlier, we are sort of working with some provider groups uh, on AI initiatives, which are quite interesting. The other thing that is uh, really important um, and and has sort of showcases our ability to be a force for good in the healthcare system is our API. It's something that we uh, recently uh, released where we are now working with provider groups and payers uh, for the first time to actually utilize ZocDoc's scheduling integrations with 80,000 plus uh, different providers for them to uh, sort of manage the flow of a patient through the system, right? And if you think about it, if you're uh, someone who is on the hook for for the patient's total cost of care because you're in a value-based system or because you have a Medicare Advantage plan, you can now, while you have the patient on the phone or while you're engaging with them over email, you can say, hey, you need to see a cardiologist and I have one who's three miles from you as an appointment next Wednesday. Do you want to consume that? And that's something that we initially launched with, a, with WellHive and the Veterans Administration, where they used to have three-way phone calls with a VA uh, you know, the VA call agent and, and the veteran, and then trying to get these practices on the line. It took them on average three weeks from the time oh that the veteran first called in <laughs> till they actually got an appointment. With the Zocdoc API, they can now book this appointment in seven minutes, right? And Amazing. so this is yeah. the type of productivity uh, and administrative uh, cost that we can take out of the system with a technology layer that's a connective tissue that brings all these separate yeah. uh, systems together. Yeah. Circling back to kind of the theme of the show, which is really what uh, your mission is, and that's reducing waste and the administrative burden. One of my biggest takeaways from an uh, an ops class I took in business school was the professor said, where there is waste, there is opportunity. And you guys have certainly um, been able to find that today. Thanks, Oliver. Thank you so much. Great to be with both of you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.